We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from supportive to disruptive, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. Many are willing to exchange their liberty for a form of socialism. Through this podcast, we will chart a course to get America back on track. Hi, I am Allie Farah, daughter of Barry Farah. My dad's a best-selling author, CEO across six industries, and former candidate for governor of Colorado. He is also a private pilot, adventurer, and engaging life coach. I should know. Through Culture Shift, my dad will systematically deliver a fresh and compelling path that will help you create your own American dream. Hey, welcome back to the Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. We're all about your success, and that depends on your freedom. So today what we're going to do is take a look at another component of economic freedom. Is it okay for you to succeed? When I was in the sixth grade, I'd get a lump in my throat when the class stood, saluted, and said the Pledge of Allegiance. I believe that it was special to be an American. I owe that gratitude and patriotism really to my granddad. He fled arbitrary rule, which among other things included the horrific genocide initiated by the ruler of the Ottoman Empire. At 21, he had made his way to Alexandria with his two sisters. They boarded a boat that was built in 1889 called the SS Thessalonica. It was filled to the brim with Greeks and Turks. He listed his nationality as Turkish. Now, at the time, when you say you're Turkish, that could mean anything from what we know of today to be modern-day Turkey all the way down to the southern tip of Israel. He arrived at Ellis Island in August 30th, 1915. He got married, became a devout Christian, and earned a modest living through the Great Depression. But to him, he was rich. He knew seven languages fluently. He learned Spanish at 79. He had seven kids and 31 grandchildren. He lived a full life of honor and in 91 was welcomed into heaven. And he taught me why I should be grateful for America. For much of human history, the government or the monarchy did not treat their subjects that well. And even in benevolent uh, monarchies, there was always the impending threat of arbitrary power used in a coercive manner to cause great harm. In 1215, the barons had had enough in England, and they backed King John into a corner, forcing him to sign the Magna Carta. This was really kind of a cumbersome document, to be honest, but it manages, kind of almost by accident, to introduce two amazing mandates for government. Number one, government shall be limited. It can't control our lives. And number two, government shall submit to the rule of law. It has to obey its own laws. In 1620, while still on a boat, landing north of where they were, planning to disembark the Mayflower Compact, lays out the requirement. Government shall apply all laws equally. It can't just pick winners and losers. In 1639, the folks uh, from Connecticut, who would later be called the Constitution State, laid out a document that became the framework for our federal U.S. Constitution, and they're called the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut. Here we find a fourth requirement for government. Government shall protect the rights of the individual, the right to vote in secret, no religious test to run for office, among other things. Now, in 1690... 
an Englishman, wrote a number of political essays that impacted the authors of the Declaration of Independence, the Federalist Papers, as well as the U.S. Constitution. His name was John Locke. And one of his essays, titled The Second Treatise on Government, perhaps his most enduring contribution was that government shall not interfere with your economic freedom. In other words, private property is personal to you. You own your own labor. And finally, we find in 1776 in the Declaration of Independence that government shall be governed under the consent of the people, that it governs of the people, by the people, for the people, not outsourced. And finally, that government shall protect and shall never infringe upon the timeless rights that come from nature and nature's God. In other words, government should not have the power to change the basic rights that we have. It should use its power to protect them. So these link inextricably to the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness concept. And the pursuit of happiness is that definition of the American dream. You look in the Wikipedia today and you'll still find that definition. You've got the freedom to choose how to produce, how to sell, how to use your time. You can be inventive with your labor and money as long as you respect and don't unlawfully interfere with others' rights to do the same. Now, I'm not here to denigrate any other country, and I love some other places. I've been around the world several times, and, and, I, and, and I really do. But there just is no other American dream. I mean, we don't say Ukrainian dream or the Georgia dream. Well, we don't say the Estonia dream. Uh, we don't say the Australian dream. We don't even say the New Zealand dream or the Singapore dream, even though all of those have their own uh, claim to certain dreams. But the, the definition is the American dream. And when you succeed against all odds in another country, you still say, I achieved the, the dream, the American dream. It's the definition that incorporates the celebration of improvement, however you want to define improvement. And so here we are looking at what built this American dream and looking at whether or not it's okay for you to uh, be successful. And what I'm nervous about is that we're witnessing a change in the attitude toward the American dream like never before. And this change is not positive. There are increasingly powerful forces who ridicule, belittle, cancel, and censor those who simply want to celebrate the American dream for themselves. So today, what I thought I'd do is back up a little bit from the American dream, a little bit away from America itself, and a little bit back from the pursuit of happiness concept, and just look back a few thousand years in the Old Testament. The concept of success was firmly connected to honoring God here. In fact, God uses the word blessing, and the word for blessing is really kind of amazing. It captures your whole soul. This is your mind, your will, your emotions. It's the concept of including uh, physical manifestations of having a family, uh, a house, food, clothing, and material abundance. In fact, the concept was additive or multiplicative. So the concept of blessing that comes from God was always to add from last year or multiply. You've got the stories of Old Testament figures that had a hundredfold returns or thousandfold returns. So let's just start with a verse. This is a real brief devotional on this, but in chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy, this is part of the five books of the Torah, the law, that the Jewish community and faith would look at as really the foundation upon everything. So here's what chapter 28 of Deuteronomy verse 18 says. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns, and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God 
gives you. So he's placing the blessing on you, but you've got to work. You've got to put your hand to it. Never does the Bible say you should seek to be poor or make others poor. You should seek to help the poor to come out of their poverty. It's morally right, though, for you to increase the wealth of your own family and contribute to the wealth of a nation. More people can effectively obey God's word when they have excess means to work with. People can be productive, and they've got many reasons to give thanks to God. So when we look at this verse, first, it's an explicit verse. The wealth is created. There's no apology for it. And ultimately, God's the one giving you the power. He's giving you the human strength. He's giving you the vigor, the force, the capacity to act. He's giving you the inventiveness to create and the ability to make, to fashion something from what wasn't there. So if you gain wealth in theory, it's easier to raise your children. You can take them on longer and better Sabbaths to honor God. Um, part of that whole Sabbath concept was to go to a place that was at a distance and to set up this beautiful time with your kids that your whole family could get around and look back and say, see what God has done. It, it gives you the ability to select a good education for your kids and to continue to build a legacy. It gives you the ability to fulfill God's uh, command about your family when you're prospering. The capacity for wealth creation is there for a reason. It's there to add to the overall value upon the earth. God gave you capacity, and he gave you the ability to make something from not ex nihilo nothing, but from essentially nothing. All the businesses that I built didn't exist beforehand. Now, have you ever just thought for a minute of what the wealth situation is like in heaven? I mean, heaven is filled with immense material abundance. An example would be found in Revelation 21, and it, verse 21. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates was a single pearl. That's a big pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold. So heaven's going to be amazing, and it's got amazing, immense wealth. But back to earth. Let's look at Deuteronomy 28, 18. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is to this day. The power to make wealth is not as selfish as it might seem at first blush. God gives you the power of the autonomy to invent, produce, and create something. But if that service or product is no good, no one's going to buy it. If it adds value, it's actually a generous thing. In my small world, in the entrepreneurial endeavors I was involved in, several executives became independent financially, uh, financially completely free uh, and millionaires. And that was as a direct result of being a part of my team. Uh, there were also hundreds that earned a great living and would say that their life was improved. Before my endeavors, there was nothing. Afterwards, there was this business that served other businesses and took care of customers and clients with this great service and great customer experience. And, and the people that I employed had a, a great venue, a wonderful culture, and an environment where their lives could improve. Everyone won. But clearly, and explicitly, God gives you the power to make wealth, to add value. Once you're successful, how, how is your property supposed to be divvied up? Are you supposed to have control over it or somebody else supposed to? Well, there's really no ambiguity on this at all from Scripture. In fact, two of the Ten Commandments speak directly to private property. The first one is, you shall not steal. 
Exodus 20:15. I mean, now God's talking and he's saying, you shall not steal. You shall not carry away by stealth or in the open. What is it you're not supposed to steal? Private property, things that belong to other people. They belong to individuals to begin with. So you're not to steal them from other individuals. And, and the government's not supposed to steal them either. Uh, society as a whole doesn't own your house. You do. The second commandment that speaks to this kind of concept of private property is the attitude that causes all the problems related to someone else's private property, and that's envy. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor, Exodus 20, 16. The idea of not coveting is that you shouldn't take any pleasure in something that's not yours. You don't own it, and by envying it or coveting it, you're endeavoring to own something that you didn't work for. This is as explicit as it gets. Private property is linked to this spiritual principle of being grateful for what you have earned and not envying what someone else earned, not lusting for his wife, not wanting his house, not wanting his, to steal his employees, not wanting to get his tools of trade and take them. No, you're not wanting anything else that belongs to him because it's private property and it's to be owned by the individual that owns it, not by the government, not by a nation, not by society as a whole. And there's a reason that God favors private property for us. And that's because we're made in his image. And so he gives us a sliver of his sovereignty over a small portion of the earth. And we've got an opportunity to imitate God's wisdom, his creativity, his love, his justice, his mercy, his knowledge, and we can imitate that. And so it's really not a selfish thing to be endeavoring to accumulate private property to the glory of God. And really, it's not as selfish as you might think because the private property system is based on an economic system that's better for everyone. So let's end with an example of how the free market really works and how when it allows you to trade or exchange things, that in the end, it increases the value proposition for everyone and everyone that responsibly participates. So we're gonna play a game called the trading game. And you can do this at home with some of your buddies, get a group of 10 folks and, and limit the world to these 10. So we're gonna pretend like the entire world is limited to these 10 people and these 10 products. The products are perfume, a facial cream, jewelry, dress, a, a suit, golf clubs, camping gear, a hunting rifle, electronics, and fine wine. So we're going to establish that the retail value of each box of these 10 products is equal in value and that they're all valued right at $1,000 exactly. Now, let's see how free markets are a much better, much more fair, much more kind and just way to go about things than socialism, Marxism, or communism. So we're going to pretend that there are 10 of you who are equally made up of men and women, and we're gonna assume that these 10 products capture the diverse interests and needs of the group of 10, all right? So I'm gonna arbitrarily now in, in, in phase one, give each of you an item at random. You have no choice in the matter, and you have to keep whatever it is that I give you. So let's say you're a guy guy, and you have a real good smelling nose, a big nose that can smell things really well, and you don't like certain types of perfume, but you get 
perfume and the perfume doesn't smell the way you maybe want it to or it's just a little too strong for you. And so that's you. So you got the perfume and it was arbitrarily given to you. So you're stuck with that perfume. Let's say you're a gal gal and you hate hunting and the whole concept of somebody going out and killing Bambi and you got the hunting rifle and you've got to keep it. So let me ask you, guy guy and gal gal, what is the value to you of those things that you arbitrarily got that you don't like? I mean, how much would you pay for the item you got? Would you pay $300 for that $1,000 rifle? You can't trade it. You can't resell it. Would you pay $100 for that rifle that you don't like, that perfume you don't like? Zero. You've got to keep it. So it's possible that the value of the perfume and the rifle would actually drop all the way to zero. And so if, if you're lucky enough to get what you want, you might pay $1,000 for it if it's the thing you absolutely want. So with no trading of the items allowed, what happens? The guys that are lucky, that get something they want, maybe get $1,000 of value, but everyone else has something that to them doesn't have anything close to $1,000 of value. So if you add up the value of this economy of these 10 people, where you have um, some at zero, maybe some are at two or 300, and maybe one or two at $1,000, you're gonna have a, a value much lower than $10,000 for this group of 10. On average, the economic gross product of this totally controlled economy is likely to be around $2,500 or so. So trading, when you can't trade, no trading allowed, decreases the aggregate value of the economy dramatically. So now let's control the market kind of like good socialists, but let's open it up a little bit. Three of you are arbitrarily allowed to trade your item for another item. Now, if you play this game with a group of 10 friends, you're gonna get a lot of laughter right here because only the select three are allowed to trade and all the others just have to sit there and watch the three make their trades. The, the total value of this economy, where the three people have the potential to make three other people happy, is much higher than that totally controlled market, but it's still far less than a completely free one. So it's possible that some of those three folks that traded with three others, creating a, a value proposition where six out of the 10 um, get kind of what they want and what they would have chosen, um, those other four, maybe one of those other four were lucky and got something they like, or maybe not their first choice, but like enough, but they're not allowed to trade. And there's two ways to play that second one. If you wanted to play that where only the three can trade among themselves as a in-between step, but they can only trade between themselves. So you only have three that can trade. And so obviously not necessarily all of them are going, not, not, not all three are necessarily gonna come out feeling that great if they can't trade with those other seven. But the other way is to allow them to trade with the other, uh, other seven, and then you can create a total of potentially six people that are happy. Either way, what you're gonna find in this trading game is that about three-fourths of the folks who didn't get to choose but just have to be stuck with their either completely controlled economy or their partially controlled economy got something randomly assigned to them that they don't like and they don't give the value to that the market would have given a higher value to. So the gross product of the partially controlled economy is gonna be approximately, on average, about $6,500. So it's gonna go down about $3,500 in total. So it's, it's going to decrease because not everyone's giving full value. Now, let's just remove all the restrictions for the third part of the game, and you can trade freely. 
Now, since we're assuming that these 10 products capture the diverse interests of the group of 10, no one's going to get stuck with anything. They're all going to be able to trade at close to full value. And that's how the free market works. So the total value of this group is going to be $10,000, and it might even go up if some people actually value it at slightly above retail value because they so desire to have it. So market value or above average market value, but everyone wins. No one has to go home with something they hate. So the bottom line is when God created you, he created you to be able to create one of those 10 items for one of those 10 folks in the economy, or, or making it seem like the economy only has 10 potential items. And, and when he created you, he gave you the ability to feel good about it. Is it okay for you to be successful? Yes. You should feel good about pursuing your career or your entrepreneurial endeavor and doing that in a profitable way. You're created in the image of God and everything God does is profitable. You're in his likeness with the ability to think, innovate, and produce. You're able to add value. And everyone you touch wins. You get blessed. They get blessed. So enjoy it. God bless you. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Ferris Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryferrisshow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.